Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. This episode, uh, another continuation of my conversation with John Keating. We talked about Roberto Clemente, among other things. Thanks, sponsors, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, CompC.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Upper Deck, Panini, and Tops. So that is the story. John never lost for words. He's a fellow podcaster, and I enjoy uh, the back and forth. So we got into it, and uh, here it is. What is the story behind the first BGS slab graded? Can you tell me what the card was, who has the card, and then whatever? What is the first officially slabbed BGS card? I really don't know the answer to that, <laughs> uh, but I do not have it. And all the early slab cards, to my recollection, were cards that you would not otherwise have wanted to grade. They were a bunch of 87 tops, Dave Kingman's, that were run through the process just to see what it was. So this card number one being the Hannes Wagner for PSA, I think that's really cool. But I I think we were slabbing and uh, grading hundreds, thousands of cards that were not very valuable in order to get the kinks out of our system without messing with more valuable cards. And they were stuff we had laying around. Sure. But you yeah. don't know what the, the first one that was released I in the wild, you don't know what, what that is. No, I don't. I wonder who would know that. Mark Harwell's passed away. Right. He might know that. Pepper might know it. Pepper Hastings was involved with Grant Sandground at Upper Deck. Now he might, he was pretty involved in those days. Mark Andrews. Yeah, I wonder if that would set off a frenzy, you know, if, if that was an- there. There is a interest in in finding not low pop, but low serial number yeah. uh, from pretty much every company, but certainly mm-hmm. from Beckett and from PSA. If you can find a low numbered slab, it had a, it had a different level of scrutiny. And I, think- at least in Beckett's case, it was pretty universally recognized now that we were a little extra tough to prove our uh, chops and our credibility. So look for a Dave Kingman is what you're saying, an 87 Dave Kingman. Well, what was the oddest? We, we, made it, we had a stack of them, and we gave them out for free at the Hawaii show back in 99 or whenever that was. And I'm just thinking, that's not going to get anybody excited about your service, that you're giving them a junk wax card that's slabbed, even right. though the slab was beautiful. You wouldn't have any reason to hold on to it. It was a work of art in the inner sleeve and the bronze and silver and gold labeling, more substantial holder, all these things. But it, you wrap it around a bad card and people are going to leave it on the counter. Back in the day, John, I won't say that was a blur, but I just think those were not my favorite days in the hobby. After my heart attack, right. I was delegating a lot more. I felt like every year I was kicking myself more upstairs, more removed from the day-to-day stuff. And I didn't like that. So the grading, I'd meet with them. They'd bring stuff up and we'd go through it. And I remember doing a lot of that. But as far as the first cards to be graded. I don't think there was fanfare about that, but maybe I'm wrong. All right. Something more pleasant for you. Well, maybe not pleasant, but when I interviewed you, the one question I forgot to ask you was about Roberto Clemente. How long do you think he would have played? And I haven't seen any historical stuff that tells us that was his last season or whatnot. Do you, I think was, he was 38, but he, one of his things was he just was misunderstood. There was more affection for him toward the last few years, obviously, uh, especially after 71, after the World Series. You talking on a national level or was he always? No, uh, but well, even Pittsburgh in the 50s, early 60s, but probably the 50s for sure. He was 
not a malingerer, but he just get aches and pains. Yeah, bad back. And, 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 it, and, it, and it was legit, but they didn't have the technology to know what it was. But so he was a complainer. And so it's frustrating for him to not be believed, but he just so rose to the occasion. 71 World Series, 72 season. He, I, I'm sure he could have played it. He was 38, I think. So he could have played a couple more years, but... He was a very proud guy. I don't know that he'd want to play. We've got Willie Mays, his contemporary, one of the greatest players of all time. But he stayed around too long, and he actually was older than Clemente, but he stuck around at least a year too long. And uh, so Clemente, I don't think he would have wanted to stick around in a diminished capacity. Certainly, if you have a favorite player like I did, and you, I'm sure, are aware of this, is that in baseball, you, with Clemente, you're not just thinking, I'm going to go, you know, you know, do something else until he has another time at bat. No. In the field, he was amazing. So you wanted to watch that. And if he was on base or was running the bases, that was an amazing experience as well. And so you obviously wanted to see his, his full at bat. And I just don't remember him not coming through in the late innings. And when he didn't come through, it was some hard liner, some rope that he hit that just happened to be right at somebody. I think the AstroTurf may have weighed on his decision, whatever decision he would have made, because it couldn't have been that fun at that age with that broken of a body to run around on the turf. The yeah, AstroTurf it, back yeah. then. Could be. Plus, uh, yeah, then you look at the big red machine in the early 70s. So, yeah, it was sad. I know exactly where I was when they interrupted the news for that, but... Just a state of shock, kind of like Kobe for the other generations now. But could he have played a couple more years? I think so. Would he have wanted to? I don't know. He really was a proud guy. So it's not like he'd want to let the fans down as much as he wouldn't want to let his legacy down or his family. more, And certainly not the sports writers, because I think he had a little bit of a love-hate with most of them. Stallback, your favorite football player? Not exactly, but my first contact with him was at the Naval Academy in 1962. I was a a young tennis player, and there was a tournament there, and all the midshipmen came in for lunch. Hey, that's Roger Stabak over there. So he's not 10 years older than me, but he's almost. And I've met him. He's a really good guy, worthy of respect, and an amazing athlete, very highly competitive. When we had our headquarters building, he wanted to get his company to rep for us and I just thought, you know, Roger, I, I think that's fine, except that we're choosing this other group that, that is more fitting for what we're doing. Right. And, uh, but he had some great people working for him as well. He was a class guy. I'm in college right now, which I find great joy I in know, saying every, every chance I get. You in Bowling Green, Ohio, I'm curious, did your students know about what you were doing on the weekends? Some of them did. Not all of them. I mean, it, it, probably not appropriate to talk about it in class time. I lived pretty close to campus and I was active in the sports on the campus at the gym. So I was playing a lot of basketball in those days, pickup games. And I wasn't that much older. I looked like a grad student, but I was a professor and uh, been on some of those weekends I'd take off and it was a perfect place to, to launch from close to Detroit, close to Cleveland, close to Chicago close to Cincinnati, just terrific. But I'd see some students at a card show, but not so much in Bowling Green. Mostly the shows were in the bigger towns in those days. I had several experiences with collectors that were my students. I certainly didn't brag about it, but I didn't deny it. It just didn't come up. SMU, there were still some collectors there too that I knew, but mainly at Bowling Green because I was in my mid-late 20s by then 
And uh, the card show circuit was terrific. You ever run into any of those folks? I, I have over the years, yeah. but not frequently. Not okay. frequently. Set building. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to be making a comeback because there's a lot about parallels and chase cards and all that stuff. Has it ever gone away or do you feel like it's coming back? Maybe I'm just- I want it to come back. That's a very legit way to collect to get a complete set. One way that the card companies have made it easier and worse at the same time is that every decade you go back, you realize they've shrunk the sets in many cases and they've made what is like a partial complete set, like a short set before you get to the SPs or the high numbers or something right. like that. It's not a real complete set. Hockey does it. You've got your young guns. And so the higher numbers are harder to get, but like 52 tops, not a lot of people, but if you could more easily have a set of one to 310 than one to 407. Back in the day, there were a lot of guys that stopped at card number 310 because the, the 52 tops high numbers were just really tough. You, you weren't even going to go after it unless you were a pretty serious collector because they, they were expensive even in those days. Relatively, yeah. In fact, those have not kept up with inflation as much. If you look at the the pricing structure from a long time ago, the appreciation of those high numbers, if it's not a star, and a mantle, obviously, uh, Robinson, obviously, Matthews, Matthews, Campanella, Reese. Uh, it seems like uh, we went through that in the 80s, 90s and whatever with the factory set, buy the factory set, and you're done. Um, I think it's bad. I, I was not big fan of that. Then you put it on the shelf and now sometimes they put some extra five special cards in there, but then you got to open it up to get them out. Now it's not sealed anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I've looked at some of those factory sets 20 years later, I think, well, let me look at that. You open it up and they're not even in numerical order. No, they're not. They're not collating. Then you're thinking, no. wait a minute. If I really was looking for somebody, I yeah, that appeals to those of us who have to have it in order. If nothing, if not a sorter in order. Right. So I, I yeah. really enjoy that. So I'm not a big fan of the factory sets. I wish the card companies had some incentives. In fact, this would re-energize common cards, not just set registry stuff. But if you were able to put together a set of something, like in the 30s, they had that. You could turn in your set for a prize. Mm-hmm. Now the prize would have to be better than what you turned in. Yep. But that'd get a lot of cards off the deck, you know, and get people chasing cards to complete sets. And I think uh, completing sets is a part of collecting, not mm-hmm. just having nice things, but but having a collection. Yeah. That's our generation, though, wouldn't you say? I don't think that transposes to a lot of the collectors after of a certain age. We rip stuff out of packs. It seems well, like that's- If I got a collection, even back in the day, if I got a collection of cards, if some kid didn't want his cards, you'd merge them in with your own yeah. and you'd see what you needed. And if you had extras, you would be happy to trade them off for the most part. But when I was a kid, they didn't want last year's cards. Right. You know, you, <laughs> just like on the flipping, the leaners against the wall, you tried to bring out last year's cards. You, I don't know if you could beat up. You, yeah. Sorry, no deal. Yeah. Or put in some non-sport or something. No, it was all baseball. Yeah, the etiquette there. You can follow the etiquette. Watch out. Um we talked about big time promoters coming into the hobby. You're tied to Dallas Card Show. I go to the Philly Card Show a lot and the national, obviously. But in my opinion, that seems where we should max out on this. Are you worried about a live nation or an AEG coming in or anything like that to well, take the, over these events? The problem is they, they have too much overhead. They're perhaps too institutionalized. They need to come up with some additional income streams. Like you were saying, if there was a way to live stream until the technology allows for that, that you could have a virtual card show, it's a two-way street, then just, I don't- the tech is there, by the way. I use that technology constantly in my field. It's just a matter of the more people that get involved and you say overhead, you're absolutely right. Now, 
large scale promoters can also offer access to venues and stars and stuff like that would normally be out of reach. So it's a double edged sword there. Paying for access to certain events, yet you're going to be paying a lot more for these a- events because the overhead. That's what we talked about the Mint Collective when they started talking about $999 to go to a weekend event where the card show aspect is not even the biggest thing, but you're going to go to seminars and parties and things like that. That's not the hobby I grew up in. If you're more experienced with that world, John, they're going to try it. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to try it. And if it does poorly, they'll do it a different way the next time. Ultimately, I want to have time to spend with like-minded people and going through cards. There's already been innovations, but I just don't know. Like your world, you could have a concert in the evening. When I go to the national the, uh, I don't look at it as an eight-hour day. I look at it as an 18-hour day mm-hmm. because I'm going to spend eight hours at the show and I'm going to spend eight hours you know, before, during, after doing other socializing and I'm going to go to sleep tired and then right. wake up the next day and do it again. And that's different than going to a concert, I think. Yeah, a concert takes your mind off of what you're there to do. I've done a lot of corporate events where they've had concerts and it's great because the people stop networking and, and tap their feet and clap their hands instead. I love the charm of the hobby where you can walk in with a $20 bill or hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars and have some fun for for the weekend. You can gravitate toward people that are pretty like-minded. Or even if you're talking to somebody that has a budget much bigger than yours, you're still going to enjoy your common love of the hobby. As soon as you get to Vegas, it it has a different vibe than being a hotel in Cincinnati. What what I grew up in for shows, Mm -hmm. a hotel ballroom that wasn't even that big. And you had pizza at night, a little room off to the side where all the guys got together and some wives, but mostly guys. And uh, those were the good old days. But I can't stop progress. I don't even want to stop progress. But I don't want the hobby to have a black eye that something would stumble. And I'm big on bootstrapping. The thing is, if you're bootstrapping, you're using your own money. <laughs> yeah. If you're not, you have some corporate money and you're trying something. And you're trying to not just break even, you're trying to make money. And I think you're noticing that. Everything is more expensive. And it gives it a corporate feel instead of the LCS and Johnny Collector. The